teams sit right on the baseline. The big fella from New Zealand. When we cut him off baseline, he started walking in there. Welcome on into the Baseline Podcast. Uh, we are working through the last of our team preview pods and to doing the Cleveland Cavaliers today, I have my guy Evan Damorell, um, editor for Fear the Sword and co-host of Locked on Cavs. Evan, thank you for your patience with my technology issues. How are you going today? Don't worry about it, man. That's <laughs> just the, the just the current side effect of the day and age we lived in where everything is just really centered on our technology. So not a huge deal at all, but I'm great. Thank you for having me. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm doing good, man. Um, these these updates have been going really well in terms of um, team previews. Good to give our New Zealand audience down here a, a bit of love around, um, yeah, some teams like the Cavs that maybe they got some love when LeBron was was around in terms of New Zealand fans. And it's just good to be able to give these smaller markets some love down here in New Zealand. So, yeah, I'm going good. Excited to talk on the Cavs. In terms of, this is a question I usually um, usually ask right away is, can you tell the the fans a bit about uh, yourself and um, yeah, what you do in the in the, the market, the Cleveland Cavaliers market uh, around the team? Well, we'd fill up this entire podcast segment if you really wanted me to talk about myself. <laughs> but I've been covering basketball for the better part of over half a decade. I started actually covering with the Charlotte Hornets for hashtag basketball. And then the, the Cavs are always my main interest, but with LeBron back in town, they were kind of a hot commodity, so it was hard for me to get on that writing group right away. So I eventually worked my way up, bounced around a lot uh, in terms of just fan blogs and fan sites. Uh, I had a stop at Forbes for a couple of years covering the Cavs there in the NBA at large, and now I'm starting a new venture at Facebook Bulletin where I'm covering not just the Cavs, but the Browns, the soon-to-be Guardians, and their impact on the community, and just sharing that with the local community as well as whoever else is interested or vaguely interested in the topics I'm discussing. And then I also do a lot of editor work for Fear the Sword, like you mentioned at the top. Uh, I run the show with my buddy Chris Manning. He's also my co-host at Locked on Cavs. It's been kind of a surreal experience. I... I've known Chris for a while. It kind of seems like destiny. We actually grew up in the same town, but never knew each other. And um, one day the Cavs sat us right next to each other in the press box and we were talking. He had me unlocked on Cavs and he was doing it by himself. And I told him after and he's like, yeah, I just don't think there's ever any chance I'd ever do a podcast. And he uh, needled me for the next year or so asking me to be his co-host. And he just happened to catch me at the right time where I didn't have a lot going on. So I'm like, yeah, sure. What the hell? I'll do it. And I was incredibly stiff at first, but I think it's one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. And it's made me incredibly comfortable talking to people. So, yeah, just in terms of the market, though, I've been I try to cover the team. Obviously, you can get sports analysis anywhere, but I try to give you takes you may not be hearing, not the general blase things. There's certain journalists who play for access more than anything, so they don't say things unfavorable. I don't try to be mean spirited about it, though. I'm not trying to say, like, this player objectively sucks. I'll just tell you, like, okay, well, this player is struggling right now. Let me explain to you why. And maybe there's a possibility if you look at stats, analytics, what have you, to say that there's an opportunity for him to rebound and actually improve upon his craft. And maybe there isn't too much to be worried about. Or when John Bayline was the head coach of the Cavaliers, and the vibes were good at the time. I think they were five and six heading into November. And I said, I'm going to sound like a bit like a wet blanket here, but. The Cavs played some pretty mediocre teams to start the season. Now the actual test begins, and then the Cleveland proceeded to lose like the next ten in a row, I believe. And um, I said, like, just just don't let the bottom fall out, fall out too quick, and it's just a lot of doom and gloom. But 
now it's just covering this young team who's kind of growing and learning on the fly and just hopefully just seeing where they go next. Like uh, I'm not a perfect writer. It's not actually, it's not my natural trade. I'm an engineer by trade, but I've transitioned into writing full time a couple of years ago. And it's just, it's been a surreal experience. And I always tell people like I complain about the day to day stuff and my general frustrations, but it, it, I, I, I keep perspective really easily when I sit back and say, you know, I'm living so many people's dreams where I get to say I get to watch sports for a living and then give my opinion on it because people will pay me for my opinion on it. So I'm incredibly fortunate, incredibly blessed to be in the position I'm in. And and it's given me opportunities like this one. I'm super excited to talk about the Cavs with you. And thanks for letting me uh, have this fl- the, the floor for a little bit to talk about myself. Yeah, no worries, man. And that's that's really inspiring. I think there's plenty of people who grew up loving the sport and loving the game of basketball and as you say who don't get to cover the teams and and you've worked hard to get to where you are and um yeah i love how real you were talking about the way that you do cover the team because at the end of the day everyone needs to to fit their own style you know like the, even the even the the best people you know right at the top of the tree like you know someone like Woj, for example didn't get who he was to where he was by you know, trying to be someone else. So I love that you put your own spin on it. And um, yeah, you're in here covering this young team. We're going to jump right in. Um, the Cavs, some of the Cavs moves I feel like have been um, lambasted is probably the best way to, to put in terms of the national narrative. Now that I don't know, you know, what's happening in market in terms of how the fans are feeling, but I still really like a lot of the young pieces that the Cavs have. And I don't think that you can't write just because a team makes off makes a couple of moves that maybe everyone isn't keen on. That doesn't mean that the rest of the pieces on the roster aren't great. How, how do you feel overall about the team as it is as currently constructed? And then how do you feel about the moves that they've made this summer? Um, as a separate question. Well, I, overall, I'm a fan of this team. I think like Zach Lowe dropped his league pass power rankings in the Cavs were I think close to the bottom if not at the bottom of the list and ESPN dropped their future prospects rankings as well and they gave the Cavs a dead last ranking but like the, the general consensus between the national narrative is is that Cleveland can draft really well it's just an untenable position to have to build out of the shadow of LeBron James not once but twice and LeBron really left a lot of damage in his wake the second time around like the Cavs had no assets really other than the Brooklyn Nets pick that they got for the Kyrie Irving trade that eventually became Colin Sexton that was their first building block and then even though they had the worst record in the league they missed out on Zion Williamson they got Darius Garland who really might be something and a player that the Cavs firmly believe could be the best player in the face of the franchise and then some more bad lottery luck the following year. And they get Isaac Okora, who, you know, for all things considered, yes, LaMelo Ball is phenomenal. Anthony Edwards is going to be something special. James Wiseman is questionable, but he's still going to be a good player. For the Warriors, at least, I still think he's going to be a fine player. Um, I think Isaac Okoro is a big win for them. Like, the Cavs have hit a lot of singles, if you if you want a baseball analogy here. They're, they're still waiting to hit the home run. I think they might have it in Evan Mobley, but we really need to see tangible data before we get before we put the cart in front of the horse here, because I know it's easy to get excited from preseason and I don't have much room to talk because I wrote over a thousand words about how special Evan Mobley is, but I'm excited about their potential. Um, Like you said, in terms of national media moves, uh, signing Jared Allen to a five-year $100 million 
extension seems like a slight overplay, but Jared Allen is a very good young center. It's it's weird to think that he is considered a veteran player despite his age. He has a wealth of experience during his time with Brooklyn and now in Cleveland. Like he is considered a key figure in this locker room. And let's be frank, Cleveland really isn't a free agent destination. Like you don't hear a lot of young, soon to be multimillionaires say, you know where I want to live, Cleveland, Ohio, because yes, the All Star Game is going to be in Cleveland this year. Um, but the wind off Lake Erie is brutal. And in February, it's going to be even worse because it's usually when the, that's when my birthday is. And that's usually when the worst snowstorms happen too. But Jared Allen, I think is a good foundational piece, especially considering what they got for him too. They gave a very late pick via the Milwaukee bucks to the Houston Rockets and Dante Exum's expiring contract. And Dante Exum could not stay healthy for Cleveland. He had uh, less than a handful of positive games for Cleveland. And I think that's really all you can say about the Dante Exum experience overall. Um, trading Torian Prince, another off injured wing for Ricky Rubio. It, it makes no sense in a vacuum because the Cavs need wing depth behind Isaac Okoro, but another glaring need of theirs was addressing backup point guard depth behind Darius Garland because in his first two seasons at the Cavs, Garland didn't have a true reliable backup behind him because his options were Exum, who could never stay healthy, and Matthew Delvadova, who also could never stay healthy, but was dealing with serious concussion issues last year and then signed overseas. So they had to address that need. And like just to give you perspective on they're playing guys like Damian Dotson as a backup point. They're trying a Coro as a backup point guard. Like they're trying everything, the non-traditional options. So they go out and get a veteran who wants to be here. And Ricky Rubio is saying all the right things. Like where he said, I was at the Suns team that was a, the bubble. So he was a part of the bubble Suns squad. And he's like, I, my job was to push Devin Booker to be the best he could be every day. He talked about how the Utah jazz made the playoffs, with Donovan Mitchell. And he's like, I, my job was to push Donovan Mitchell and make that team, be- make everybody better one through 15 every single day. He said last year, his latest understudy was Anthony Edwards. And Anthony Edwards has been on record saying that Ricky Rubio is one of the greatest teammates he ever had. I think that says a lot. And I think he says that he singled out Darius Garland as his latest protege says a lot. I don't think Garland will be here very long or not. Sorry, not Garland. Excuse me. Ruby will be here very long because he's on an expiring contract and I'm sure some veterans team will come looking for him, but I think it's a good move. The, the biggest one in the room though, figuratively and literally other than Mobley draft acquisition is signing and trading for Larry Markkinen. Uh, for context, Larry Nance Jr. was a hometown kid who was the one who went to Portland in this deal. And Larry came from Chicago to Cleveland and, Chicago got two draft picks out of it, which is still wild to me, but apparently they had no interest in Larry Dance Jr. for what I gathered. But marketing, you lose a lot of things with Nance, who's a hometown kid, and he provides playmaking, he provides defense. He's a little gun shy from three. Um, he's the ability to play three and four. He's like an interesting, fun player. And again, he's a hometown kid. I think he saved the front office's bacon and them a PR nightmare because fans were very upset that they just traded Nance. Uh, when Larry penned a letter through the local paper saying, like, hey, guys, I approached the front office around summer league or so and said, I the only time I've been into the playoffs in my career is when I reached the NBA Finals in 2018 with LeBron's last year. I would like to experience that again. I'm almost 30. He has Crohn's disease and the medication he's on kind of makes him more injury prone. So he maybe only have a few quality years of basketball left. So he wants to go experience that. And he kind of put a short list out and Portland was on that list and Chicago was too, but then they made the trade work, but I'm intrigued by the marketing and acquisition. Um, I know the Cavs have a bevy of big men like Kevin Love's still on the roster. We'll probably have to talk about him in a bit because that's just a segment all in itself really. 
but it's tough for JB Bickerstaff to figure out how to make all these pieces work because you're paying Kevin Love 31 million. So you expect him to play, but he'll be coming off the bench. Evan Mobley is your star big man. You want him to play as many minutes as possible. Jared Allen is your recently signed five-year extension guy. He plays center. You want to play as many minutes as possible. So Markin is at the four. You have an okayish rotation there. So the Cavs have been trying Larry Markin into the three. I talked about this on my show last night, Locked on Cavs. I don't think it's like a normal rotation thing that Cavs can do, but it's a fun wrinkle in theory if you want to put spacing next to Isaac Okoro and Evan Mobley. So I think the Cavs are, they're going to be better. I don't think they're going to be actively tanking this year, obviously. I think you can look at Detroit, you can look at Orlando for teams that are actively going to be doing that in the Eastern Conference. I just don't think they made enough moves to really make a ton of noise in the Eastern Conference, despite what they're saying. Because if you look at the grand scheme of things, they're projected to win 26.5 games this year. And I've told my listeners and readers, if you're a betting person, put as much money as you feel comfortable with on the under for that. Because Brooklyn's going to be better. Even with Kyrie Irving out, they got James Harden back at full health, and that team's going to be better. They Boston's good. You have Chicago. You have Charlotte. You have the Pacers, the Heat, the Hawks, the Bucks. Uh, the, I mean, the Wizards could be something too with Brad Beal on the roster. And then it, it, it's tough. It, it's just certainly tough to be in Cleveland's position where you're actually trying to be the best you can. I think it's good that you don't want losing to be the norm. But at this at this juncture, I just think it's tough for the Cavs to really say like we're going to be a playoff team. Maybe they'd be a team that forced the play in again. But I, I also just wouldn't be surprised if they're picking high in the draft lottery. Because the schedule makers at the NBA were also not very kind to Cleveland to start the season. They have a brutal West Coast road trip to start things. And I think that'll be a real test of how does this young team handle adversity? Yeah, that's a that's an amazing breakdown, man. Just talking through basically like the last 12 months of the team in, in about six minutes. Um, yeah, and I love your, how real you are around the team's chances um, and being pretty objective on those bigs that were signed. You talked about Kevin Love. I think the first thing that, that people probably want to ask is um, what, what is the deal with with Kevin Love? He seems, I don't know, he seems like he's got a bit of a bad rap recently. I don't think he's a bad dude. Um, you know, he, at the end of the day, he's he wants to play. I feel like he's been a good teammate before on, on Cavs teams and he was a good player in Minnesota. Um, what's his role going to be this year and moving forward? Clearly, he is, a, is quite a negative asset at the moment in terms of his value um, because he's basically, you know, he's a five these days who's you know only six foot nine and, and doesn't protect the rim. Um, so, yeah, what is Kevin Love's role going to be this season and basically what is going on with him and the team? Well, at the top, Kevin Love had most to play 13 to 15 night, minutes a night for the Cavaliers. And on a back-to-back scenario, don't be surprised if he isn't played because of that calf injury that goes hand-in-hand with the Achilles injury he was also dealing with last season. And it just kind of makes it tough to really objectively say, okay, this guy's fully healthy because you couldn't even make it through Team USA practices. And then you have Jerry Colangelo kind of slamming him in the media and kind of a snake-like fashion there. But I think at this point, like Kevin Love through his agent, through Adrian Wojnarowski have said, we don't want to buy out with the Cavaliers. And I think a lot of that's posturing because I've talked to folks in the organization 
they like Kevin. I, they think he wants to be here, but I think both sides agree that he's no longer in their future plans long-term. I think that became crystal clear. He's no longer in their future plans and they committed so much money to Jared Allen, Larry Markin. Um, I just think at this point, like the Cavs need to come to terms with a buyout agreement for him and kind of let him play for a contending team. And I know he's intrigued by Brooklyn. Surprise, surprise. I think every, <laughs> every former all-star who's kind of looking for a last gas, better ring is interested in Brooklyn, but there's also his hometown Portland trailblazers. There's the LA Lakers, but they're, they're pretty far apart on this because I know love doesn't want to give up a single cent of the remainder of his 60 million over the six, roughly 60 million over the next two years. And I mean, if I was Kevin Love, I also would not blame him at all. I would want to keep every penny of that $60 million as well. So that that's tough in itself, and you have to figure that out. But like I said, with Markman in the fold, Mobley in the fold, Allen in the fold, those three are your three key bigs going forward. Maybe the acquisition of Ed Davis means something too. Maybe they really like Taco Fall enough during preseason and training camp play that they keep him long-term as well. But like Love is being phased out of the rotation and the plans in Cleveland and yeah, you're right. He, the, the perception around him being a bad guy is a little overblown by Cavs fans who are fed up with him. He's frustrated. I think he the, the Cavs overreacted when LeBron first went to the Lakers because they signed Kevin to that massive extension. It was four years, $120 million at the time, soon after LeBron said he was signing to the Lakers. I think that was an emotional reaction on Cleveland's part. And if you're Kevin Love, let's be frank, if you were offered $120 million, would you be stupid to say no to that? But I think he regrets signing the extension because he's just so oft injured because soon after the season started, when he saw the season prior to the beginning of his extension, he broke his foot and he missed the majority of Colin Sexton's rookie season. And he comes back and this team is dramatically different than the one that he first started with because George Hill is gone. J.R. Smith is in exile. Tristan Thompson and Larry Nance Jr. are really the only familiar faces from that finals team is still there. And I mean, like Kyle Korver's gone too. And Kyle Korver, weirdly enough, had a clause in his contract that said if LeBron left, I have to go too, which I don't know if it was actually written in. It might have been like a verbal agreement, a handshake deal, and then that got leaked to the media. But it's just that's interesting. That in itself is interesting to think about. But Kevin just became frustrated because, let's be frank, you spend four years of consistent success you're playing in the nba finals granted you're playing the juggernaut warriors for the last two years of that you win a championship in one of those years like that's that's good stuff and then you look at your other teammates whether it's Kyrie with boston and then eventually brooklyn or lebron with the lakers or jr smith with the lakers or tristan thompson with boston or kyle corver with the bucks and the jazz and george hill with the bucks and then just so many different play and the sixers as well for george hill like i'm just naming some players at the top of my head here um to see all of your teammates and probably your friends go on and have success elsewhere while you're kind of stuck in cleveland circling the drain as the worst team consistently in the eastern conference for the last few years it's frustrating. Like I have empathy for Kevin Love in that sense, but it's bubbled over at times too, where it's frustrating where he is sworn general manager, Kobe Altman, and then coach John Balin up and down the floor after practice, because he's frustrated with the situation he wants out. And then he has to apologize or he has on court temper tantrums. I've talked to other executives around the league that say like, that's, that's tough for a GM to sell to an owner saying like, listen, we're going to trade for this guy. Yeah, he's had a couple blowups with his current team, but maybe it'll be different here. Like, you're as an owner, do you feel comfortable committing that much money to the possibility of there being another flare up? I hope Kevin can play the good company guy this year, kind of like he weathered the storm during the LeBron years where he was consistently in trade rumors and he was the butt of every joke. And 
every national pundit or local pundit or analyst was blaming him for all their downfalls and pitfalls. I don't know. I just, I hope they can end things on amicable terms. I hope he can go out on a good note. I know Cavs fans hold a lot of animosity towards him for some weird reason. Still, um, he was vital for the team's championship success. I think he should be sent out. I think number zero should be retired along with two as well. I think it's just weird that Kyrie Irving got the Dwight Howard Orlando magic treatment when Colin Sexton came to town, but I don't run the day to day of the Cavaliers either, but you should respect certain players that are key to the success of a championship. And you just let him move on and kind of go out with his dignity still intact. And I think a buyout's going to happen sooner or later. I've heard that Blake Griffin's deal with the Pistons is more or less similar where Blake was kind of phased out of the Pistons future plans as well. And eventually Blake just kind of got fed up and said, fine, I'll give you back 13.3 million. I think is the exact number he gave back Detroit. So I think if, Kevin Love started there and eventually was talking to about 15 million. He'd be bought out tomorrow, but tomorrow is a couple more days away. I think at this point, he's going to be riding the pine for the Cavs to start the season. And we're probably not going to see much of him. I mean, he's going to be useful, I think in limited bursts, but that's all you can really get from him at this point. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant breakdown on Kevin Love. And, and, and I definitely see similarities between him and Blake Griffin. In terms of, I'm just going to get in any dysfunctional situations that have been talked about in the last six or 12 months out of the way. Oh, there's a lot of them, so <laughs> go ahead. We've got time. What 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 was happening with Colin Sexton last year? And, I mean, here's a guy I feel that's taken massive steps forward as a scorer, um, definitely, a, you know, a, a pretty high-level scorer in the NBA, albeit, albeit on, on, you know, on bad teams. What What is... Sexton's um, ceiling as a player, for for example, to, um, to start off with, um, and then what's his role going to be next year? When you consider how this rotation or this team seems to have a ton of fours and fives, and then guys that are like combo guards, but there's not really a lot of proper two threes on the roster. What what, what do you think his role is moving forward? Well, we have to go back to when the Cavs drafted Darius Garland the year after they drafted Colin Sexton. And the first thing they mentioned was kind of emulating the model that the Portland Trailblazers have with David Lillard and CJ McCollum, which yes, they made a Western conference finals run, but that was against a very gassed Denver Nuggets team that they got to the, the pleasure of reaching the, the finals to play the Warriors against. But I, I consider that team a bit of a fluke. And I think the Blazers model is a little tough to emulate because it's also unfair to put those expectations of finding a Damian Lillard out of this group. And I don't think you're going to, um, in terms of Sexton's role and the, 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 the preconceived notions about him around the league and just locally, he's a beloved player. I think he plays with a chip on his shoulder. He can get, he's a, he's an elite three level score. It, it, it's funny. If you think about it, when he was coming out of Alabama, people compared him most to Eric Bledsoe because he couldn't hit three pointers very well or consistently, I should say, and played defense. And he's completely flipped, completely flipped the narrative at this point where he's nothing like Eric Bledsoe. And he is an elite three level scorer who cannot play a lick of defense. He struggles with playmaking and he has some tunnel vision at times, but at times last season, he made smart reads in terms of just like dumping it down to Jared Allen or getting Jared Allen involved in the pick and roll. So I think Evan Mobley and Larry Markin on the roster make his life easier as a playmaker, but you're not really asking Colin to playmaker. You're asking him to get buckets. And I think a lot of Cavs fans are divided on him because if you look at this Cavs team, he's entering his fourth year. Yes, his fourth, no. Yes, his fourth season with the Cavaliers. Sorry, I was just thinking out loud in real time. And the Cavs haven't really 
if you plot their points on their terms of winning, they haven't really made tangible progress towards being a winning squad. Now, granted, last year they flirted with the playing tournament, but once it kind of became out of reach, once they lost to the Bulls in March, there's a little bit of shameless tanking on their part to just kind of get a better draft pick, which I, I totally get. But at the same time, I don't think Colin is a floor raising player or a ceiling raising player. I just think he's a player who makes a lot of sense on a team. And that's where it gets kind of tricky because he's been contract extension eligible since this off season. And I've been reporting on it for a little while now. He's been popping up in trade rumors. I think the Knicks and the heat were the most interested. The thunder were as well. And I think all three of those teams are still interested if a deal comes to fruition, whether it's through CAA ties or just the thunder having so many more assets than God himself, they can just kind of go out and get any player they want. Plus the for the financial flexibility, uh, Colin also in his camp also wanted top dollar in extension. And that's kind of where my argument comes in here is okay. You look at Colin Sexton, who can be sometimes a bit of a black hole on offense, who can sometimes be a little bit of a stopgap offensively as well. Do you get those same results? If my hypothetical is because a lot of cast fans like to compare him to Donovan Mitchell, if you look like their numbers, the terms of age and season wise, like they have comparable numbers, but I think they're completely different players. And it's, it's a disservice to call is a disservice to Donovan. And it's unfair to Colin to put those expectations on him. But so my counterpoint is, so if you take this current Colin Sexton and you drop him on the Utah jazz right now and you replace him, you replace Donovan Mitchell with him. Do you get the same exact results you would with Donovan Mitchell? And I think if people tell me, yes, I think they're lying because Donovan Mitchell is just a different player than Colin Sexton. They're wired similarly, but they're different at the end of the day as well. Um, so there's just a bit of that argument too. Is like, how much money are you willing? Are you comfortably going to willingly commit to Colin Sexton? Because there's only so much to go around. And next year, Darius Garland is extension eligible. And the following year, Isaac Okoro is. And then, God, the year after that, Evan Mobley is too. And then there's also going to be moves like the Larry Markman sign and trade too, where you have to figure that out as well. So I think the Cavs need to just find a price point that they're comfortable with when it terms in terms of signing Sexton. And in terms of his overall role, like I said, they're trying to emulate a lot of what Portland's doing where they have two small guards in their front court or their back court, I should say. And then they surround them with big bodies in their back and their front court. So you look at Isaac Okoro, who's a little small for the three position, but it has the ability to defend one through three very well and defend the four at times. You have Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, who are both, in terms of size, centers, but they provide the defensive ability to kind of cover up from the deficiencies of Sexton and Garland together. And you just kind of build a system of accountability on defense, and then you don't really worry about Colin playmaking too much. Um, you don't. You just kind of hope he can be the just the, a dynamic option in on offense for them and just kind of make everything flow more properly. And you just kind of look at Darius Garland and said to be the lead point, the lead maestro in the situation instead. And it's tough to really gauge what his ceiling is because again, this Cavs team has not won a lot since Colin Sexton's come here. But again, it's also hard to build out of the shadow of LeBron James. So it, I wanted to say he was a six man a few years ago. Cavs fans still hold that against me to this day, so I'm hesitant to answer sometimes what exactly his ceiling is because he keeps shattering the norm and the expectations of what is thought of him at any given time. So just kind of taking a wait and wait. I know it's not, it's a roundabout way of not really having an answer, but I'm taking a wait and see approach and I'm actually myself still wondering what exactly his ceiling is. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good breakdown on a, on a fascinating young guy. In terms of his backcourt partner, Garland, I feel like Darius Garland's a guy who hasn't, got the same amount of love nationally. Um, but I've seen some growth from him in the last year where I think he could be 
he could be a really good piece in the NBA on a good team. Um, what what do you see Garland's role moving forward, and, and what can you tell listeners about his game that maybe um, people that don't follow the Cavs often um, can what things they can watch out for, or what things you've noticed that maybe the the normal person who only watches the Cavs a few times a year would would notice. Well, with Garland, it's interesting because I personally questioned the pick at the time. I was a big Jarrett Culver guy, and I'm I'm glad to say I was wrong on that one. But Darius Garland is interesting. He, in his rookie season, showed a lot of flashes of potential, but he was really gun-shy from three, and he didn't really look like he could be the franchise point guard of the future. He looked like he could be a nice piece for the Cavs just to kind of add to their foundation and maybe... Eventually, they find their quote-unquote guy. Like that—that that was my biggest argument for a while. Was the Cavs haven't found the guy? Which whether it was like Zion Williamson in the Pelicans or Ja Morant with the Grizzlies, or you look at other teams with just young stars on them, they're like, okay, they found their guy. This is the person they build their entire identity around going forward. Uh, and Gar- and in Garland's sophomore season, he saw a lot of the flashes again at first, but then when he started to get comfortable, really started to see like those flashes become sparks, become flames, become a become a raging fire at times where you're like, okay, this kid could be the real deal. I just need to see more of it. And you started to see more and more of it around the all-star break and after the all-star break. But the biggest issue with Darius Garland is he cannot consistently stay healthy. And that's the frustrating thing is where he would put together like a solid string of five or six games and then he'll have like a nagging ankle injury or a random shoulder injury that sidelines him for three to five games. And he just kind of kills the momentum. You just need him to keep building that momentum to reach superstardom. And again, I think the Cavs were doing some shameless tanking in last season. They held Darius out a lot, but they played him every now and then. But I think it says a lot that overwhelmingly throughout the organization, whether it's the general manager, Kobe Altman, or the head coach, J.P. Bickerstaff, or any of his teammates, a lot of people are saying Darius Garland is the most impressive player in camp, and a lot of people feel that this is his team to lose going forward, where he is going to take the reins of this organization and become the face of the franchise. He actually said today during media availability, we're recording this on Wednesday, October 13th, he's like, I want this to be my team. I, I want to prove to my teammates and the coaching staff why this is going to be my team and why I'm being handed the keys of the offense. So Darius is an interesting player. I think his three-point shot is silky smooth. I still think he's a little gun-shy from three, but we're starting to see him be a bit more selfish in the preseason, but not a lot you can take stock of during preseason. I think he is a very, very, very good playmaker, and I think he provides an interesting wrinkle for the Cavs offensively as their lead guard. I think having Ricky Rubio as a mentor is certainly beneficial for him because like I said, Rubio wants to make him better because he had a pretty great sophomore season. And Rubio said in his intro presser to the meet Cleveland media, he said, yeah, that, he said it's hard to have a great season like that, but what's even more difficult is to have a season that is even better than the season before that. And he said, my job is to make sure Darius has a better season than he did last year. So it's all refreshing stuff. Um, I'm taking a wait and see approach. Like I've written about how I think he has the potential to become the face of the franchise and has the potential to become like the lead maestro and the lead guy for the Cleveland for Cleveland's offense. But I'm going to take a wait and see approach on him as well. Much like Colin, where if it translates to winning basketball, great, but I need to see like a solid tangible stretch to open the season, especially with that rough road trip to open things. How does Darius Garland respond to adversity? Does he, flourish or does he wither when the spotlight's the brightest on him and we'll really be interested to see what happens at that point but 
until then, like he just needs to stay healthy. And I think if he builds upon a strong sophomore campaign, the Cavs could really be cooking with grease. Or if not, then maybe they start canvassing the market for a different starting point guard. Who knows? It, it's all it's all really hard to figure out what exactly is certain with the Cavs team that just hasn't done a lot of winning over the last several years. Yeah, yeah, that's that's brilliant. It's I think I think it at bare minimum it makes things interesting for the for the fans, even if it, even if it means that that's you know, not the interesting that they want and it may be a little bit frustrating. I think it's very interesting for the fans. If you're looking at the small forward position, um, we do see Isaac Okoro there. Can you talk a bit on on him and what he'll bring? And then also Chetty Osman is still on the roster. He has, looks like, two years left on his deal this year and next year. Is he someone you think that'll be a trade piece? And who are the guys that are going to play the three this year uh, after we talk about Okoro? That's, you know, your second question. Uh, no, it's, I guess third question because Jetty was the second one. That is such a good question that I'm also asking myself and the coaching staff and whoever is available to speak to the media. But I like Isaac a lot. I was a big fan of his at Auburn. He answers a lot of the questions. He ticks a lot of the boxes for what the Cavs need in terms of just the defensive wing. Like It was a bad perimeter defense team last year for or two years ago for Cleveland. It still was bad last year, but... Isaac is a incredible defender. He's incredibly mature for his age as a defensive prospect, but a lot of the concerns about him coming out of Auburn still remain. He's not, he's not, his three point shot isn't fundamentally broken, but he's a shaky three point shooter. He cannot reliably say, okay, Isaac Okoro can get you a couple three pointers any given night. Like there are some nights where he's completely dialed in and he looks great, but there's other nights where he just kind of looks mediocre at best. And I did a long form piece about this not too long ago where, where we can exactly pinpoint where Isaac Coro can end up in several years time. And I said, if he follows his current trajectory, maybe in the next few years, he looks more and more like a justice Winslow type player because he has a little bit of that tertiary playmaking vibe to and handle as well. Like that, that was an interesting development last year. And I think it's something the, that he didn't really get to show off at his time in Auburn, but it's something the Cavs coaching staff is encouraging him to do. But so a Justice Winslow type path right now, long-term more so a Jared Wallace type path. If he becomes like another worldly playmaker and maybe a little bit more reliable three-point shooter, you could start seeing some Jimmy Butler flashes or some Andre Iguodala flashes, which I know are both Hall of Fame caliber players, but like I'm that high on Isaac Horo's upside. But it's just, it's a lot of wait and see approach. He said today with the media again on October 13th. This is the hardest point in his career right now is learning how to play without the ball in his hands and just learning how to be a slasher and be able to provide high energy plays so that he can get his lead guards and Colin and Darius more involved in the offense. But he does stress to his teammates that he does need touches to maintain a rhythm and flow with the offense as well. So I think it's just going to be trying to figuring things out. Hopefully he doesn't have a sophomore slump, but if he's just a defender who cannot provide defense, I think you have to start saying maybe he's more of a bench player. Like I said, he is kind of undersized to play the three overall, but I think that's what he's going to be penciled in in Cleveland's rotation as, especially as the starting three. Um, just interested to see what's going to happen there. I mean, hell, the Cavs could trade for Ben Simmons tomorrow and Isaac Okoro could just completely be phased out of the equation because I think Okoro, or not, sorry, not Okoro, Simmons will play the three at that point. But Jetty Osman, now that's an interesting player. I was a big Jetty fan during LeBron's last season. That was Jetty's rookie season when he hardly played where much like Colin, people thought Jetty was going to be a high energy wing. He plays a lot of defense and provides like a little bit of playmaking, some shooting every now and then. Uh, and then when LeBron left, Jetty became the team's starting small forward. It became evidently clear very quickly that 
Jetty cannot handle the workload of 35 minutes tonight as a starting small forward in this league. He is a peaks and valleys player is what I like to call him where he'll have, he'll put together like a string of three or four really good games where he's locked in from three. He's playing passable defense. He's providing good tertiary playmaking. He's just doing all the right things. I mean, he's just not a good defender. Like, let's just be frank. Like if you ever want to break down Jetty Osmond footage, just watch his footwork in the last few years. And it's just objectively terrible. Um, and then he has a lot of valleys, though, after those peaks. And those last for 10-ish games where he's just either ice cold from three or he's gunning away because Jetty Osmond is infamous in saying after they play the Jazz that the Cavs need to play more like the Utah Jazz and shoot more threes. And I guess he just kind of made it his mission on his own to be in order to make that happen. It's just kind of funny to think about that. Osmond is the one telling the Cavs to play a more modern brand of basketball, and he's going to do it by himself. So eventually he kind of... Got put in the coach's doghouse towards the end of last season. They didn't really talk about it, but J.B. Vickerstaff outright benched him for a handful of games, and I've learned that they just kind of had to break things down with him and tell him he needs to calm down when he's on the floor, not just be a gunner from three-point range and not just be so reckless when he has the ball in his hands, and they just kind of slowly let him earn his minutes, and then a bevy of injuries happened, so they had to turn to Jetty no matter what to see what happens there. So I think right now, he's probably penciled in as the backup two or the backup three, depending on how the coaching staff wants to use him because the other options on the roster are Dylan Windler, Denzel Valentine and Lamar Stevens. And I can give quick breakdowns on all three of them. Dylan Windler was the 26 overall pick out of Belmont in the 2019 draft. I want to say just the year I might be off on, but he was known as a three point shooter who can provide defense rebounding and actually did a profile on him prior to his rookie season when he was recovering from surgery during summer after summer league where he at his peak said the player he compares to most would probably be Joe Ingles where he likes to be a playmaker. He likes to be a bigger body forward who can play defense and rebound and also provide shooting. Um, And unfortunately for Dylan throughout his career, he's just dealt with nagging leg injuries and just never really able to stay fully healthy and stay fully on the floor at all times. And he's just not a reliable option. Like I get this question asked a lot by whether it's readers or listeners saying, do you think Dylan Wendler is a part of the team's future plans? I, and I, I say no at this point. He's on the last year of his rookie deal. I think he's, he has to prove for the Cavs he's worth committing to long-term or maybe for another year or two, and then they just kind of work it out from there. But knock on wood for him, I wish him the best, but he looks healthy. He's been hitting threes. He's having a hot streak right now, so hopefully he keeps it up. If he does that, I can see him bumping Osmond out of the rotation and being more of a backup two or three for the Cavs, and then – because it's if it's not him, Lamar Stevens, I think, is the other serious option as the backup three for the Cavs. And he's the exact opposite of what Jetty Osmond is. He is what I like to call the perfect J.B. Bickerstaff player, where he plays with a ton of energy every night after going at, undrafted at a Penn State. Um, he plays with a ton of energy every night. He plays really hard on defense. He has the ability to defend one through four, which is super encouraging, but he cannot hit a three-pointer to save his life. He's just not a good shooter at the end of the day. And it just, it is what it is at this point. Like you can't be too, too frustrated with it. Um, During summer league, JJ outlaw was the head coach. And this was through JB Bickerstaff. They wanted Lamar to bring the ball up more and play, be more of a playmaking three instead of just the four. And they've tried it a little bit during preseason. It's worked at times, but I think it's going to be between Dylan Jetty and Lamar to get that backup three spot. Uh, Yeah. For, to back up Isaac and then, 
the JB Bickerstaff said he's going to go about 10 deep in his rotation. He'll play specialists on a night to night basis. I think Windler, Dean Wade could be included in that equation as well because he can sometimes play the three as well. And then Labar will be considered those specialists in terms of your three point shooting or defense. Because my man, Denzel Valentine, has hardly played for the Cavs this preseason, but he's on the roster. He's technically under contract for the next two seasons, if I remember correctly, off the top of my head. Um, he's just going to be Larry Markkinen's hype man at this point and just talk a bunch of crap to the Chicago Bulls on social media and draw the <laughs> ire of Bulls fans <laughs> because he, Larry Markkinen had a dunk on Nikola Vucevic the other night and Denzel was posting it about it on Instagram and drawing the ire of Bulls fans. And I respect the confidence. Um, they asked him what he had media availability, I think last week or maybe a week and a half ago, where they asked him, what do you bring to the table? He's like, I bring athleticism, I bring shooting, I bring playmaking, I play defense. I think that I have the ability to play one through four in this league. What? There's a lot of eyebrow raising. Yeah, there's a lot of eyebrow raising stuff coming out of Denzel's mouth. It, it was an entertaining media session. We'll say that much. Um, <laughs> and he, he took a couple shots at Chicago on the way off, off the mic too. So it, it's just, it's just an interesting, he's an interesting player. Um, I hardly think he's going to play a minute for the Cavs. I think he's just kind of, kind of be there as a presence, you know, as an emergency depth option. And, you know, I, I don't hate the signing. It's a low risk, possibly high reward signing. I think the book is kind of out on Denzel Valentine, but when you're a team that has limited financial options and you have hardly any roster spaces left, it's not the worst signing in the world. But it, it, it's a grim outlook in terms of depth behind Isaac Okoro. And either it's you take a run-and-gun polarizing Valley player, peak and Valley player in Jetty Osman, a forward who cannot stay healthy in Dylan Windler, or a forward who plays his butt off, but he cannot hit a three-pointer at all, who would be a dominant force in like the 60s and the 70s, but does not really work in today's modern NBA in Lamar Stevens. Yeah, that's that's awesome breakdown on that position, man. Um I did a little bit of Cavs work pro for about eight or nine months. I had a, had a podcast with some with some other guys I know, and Denzel was like, I don't know. It seems like fans had a love hate relationship with him, and then I think he pulled up for this really deep three when the Bulls were down by five, and it was like Damian Lillard depth, and it was a crazy year ball, didn't touch anything, went viral, and fans just seemed to was it really go against the, the guy. Heat? I think it was, yeah. It was a pretty. Do I have the situation right? It's a, it was a pretty bad shot, and the looks on all his teammates' faces just said it all. He was pulling up like he was Dame. He's a guy that averages four points a game, you know. Um, but yeah, interesting dude. That will be another interesting little situation. Uh, before we talk on the sort of the back end guys of the roster, can you talk a bit on the the front court? Um, who's going to be the starting four? Who's going to be the starting five? And how will those rotation minutes play out this year across the the power forward and the center position? The starting four is going to be Evan Mobley. I think if you take a player third overall and you don't play him immediately, it's weird coaching stuff where you have to make him quote unquote earn the minutes. I'm very high on Evan Mobley's potential. I hate the term unicorn for a lot of players, but I think he has the ability to be a truly unique player just because of his size and skill set. It's, defense it's playmaking it's his ability to score inside his ability to shoot from the perimeter and score like he is a truly unique player and he's 
painfully shy. That's my only complaint about him is when you, if you go on the Cavs website and you look at their media day videos, you'll see some of the players had like 20 minute press conferences. Evan Mobley's was eight minutes, 30 seconds because he just kind of gave yes or no answers to every question, even though most of the questions were yes or no questions, which you kind of respect when you're 19, you're a little overwhelmed by all of this too, but he's, he's doing all the right things from what I've heard. He's worked with Darius Garland one-on-one to figure out, what spots he likes on the floor, what spots Darius likes on the floor in terms of like kickouts to the perimeter and things like that. Um, he's worked with Laurie Markton to kind of tighten up his shot a little bit and become more of a reliable three-point shooter early on. He's worked with Jared Allen, who, like I said, is extremely valuable for the Cavs. I think his most valuable skill is the fact that he can protect the rim and block shots without fouling. And if you look at Mobley, he's averaging two blocks a game in the preseason, but he's averaging 3.25 fouls per night. So... Obviously, there's going to be a little bit of a transition there because he's going from playing collegiate basketball to the big leagues, and he is painfully thin at 215 pounds despite being over seven feet tall, but he'll grow into his frame, and you just got to remain patient with him, I think, especially when you look at the Jalen Greens or the Cade Cunninghams of the world. Like It's going to be tough for Cavs fans to maybe watch the two guys ahead of him. And I think Scotty Barnes is in an awesome situation in Toronto as well. So maybe Cavs fans are going to kind of be wringing their hands over that or even um, just the kids that Orlando took as well. Like there's going to be a lot of what ifs, but I, I assure Cavs fans listening like Evan Mobley is the guy and his mentor, Jared Allen, will be the starting five for the Cavs. And I think, like I said, Matt Allen's most valuable skill set is being able to defend the rim and block shots without failing. Like that's incredibly valuable. And he provides defense. He provides He's such a reliable lob threat and pick and roll partner for Darius Garland, and he's such a good passing option for Colin Sexton. Like Jared Allen, I was super high on, and someone the organization was super high on when they traded for him. Kobe Altman smartly said when they first acquired him, saying, "Like, listen, we didn't trade for Jared Allen not to have him in house so we could sign him long term. Like, they fully planned on signing him long term, and I think Allen knew right away he wanted to be in Cleveland because." In Brooklyn, he didn't really feel wanted after they signed DeAndre Jordan. He was kind of bumped to the bench, and he knew he was better than DeAndre, so I don't blame him. So I think those two are going to be the key pieces there. I think Markkinen is going to be in the fold as well, so is Kevin Love. So you have those four, and I think it's on J.B. Bickerstaff at that point to kind of figure out what does and doesn't work because during summer league play, Kobe Altman told ESPN during the broadcast that they don't really want to play Mobley at the five necessarily right away. But during the preseason, they played Mobley at the five at times, but or it could be marketing if you want to get tactical about it. But you more or less want to put a shooter next to one of these two at any given time. And if they're both on there, you want to have as many shooting, much shooting as possible. So that's why I said like Bakersdaff has tried marketing at the three. So a theoretical lineup, if you say like Darius Garland, Isaac Okoro, Larry Markkinen, Evan Mobley, Jared Allen, it seems funky. It seems weird. But if you played it for five, six minutes a night, it's not terrible because you're putting shooting next to Mobley and Allen and you're putting shooting next to Okoro as well. Or you can really go f- balls to the wall shooting as well. And you put love at the four or the five. You put Mobley at the four or the five. You start marketing it. You play marketing it as well, along with Garland and Okoro. So you have a little bit of defense, a lot of shooting. And just a lot of interesting wrinkles there. So I think it's going to be those four players, like I mentioned, that are going to be the key front court rotation. Um, if you want to include small forward as well, it's going to be a Coro. Then you have probably Osman and then Windler or Stevens getting fringe minutes there too. So it's going to be like that sextet and maybe octet if you include the other two players as well for like the key six players in that ro- or eight players, six to eight players in that rotation. 
and you just kind of figure it out from there. And then in terms of other bench pieces, you just have Ricky Rubio being the one or two guard because Bickerstaff has employed Rubio in relief of Garland alongside Sexton and relief of Sexton alongside Garland just by himself. Like he's an interesting wrinkle too. And I think he's going to be one of the primary bench options for the Cavs. They're so good, man. There's so, so many great takeaways there when you're talking on the four and the five. Um, when I jumped into basketball references, we were chatting prior to the pod. I saw there was about a thousand guys there who'd been brought in on either partial guarantees or on camp deals. Who, who do you think is going to play minutes? You've sort of touched on Windler and Dean Wade. Who is going to be out of the end of bench guys before we close the pod out? Who are, who are those last few guys that are going to get minutes and then stay around to be on the team for the year and you know maybe have their contract guaranteed for um, and not you know not be cut after camp? Who are those last few guys that will make the roster and then potentially play minutes on the end of the bench? See that that's tough because they just waved Broderick Thomas, one of their two way guys, the other day. Broderick did not have a good summer league. I think he and his agent knew that this could happen. Um, I know. Taco Fall is a fan favorite. I know JB Bakerstaff is also uh, one of those fans of Taco Fall where they want to kind of keep him in house and maybe sign him to a two way deal. Uh, they just signed Justin James, um, who played at the Kings last season to a training camp deal. So he might try and get a, he might get a decent stab at him too. Uh, just in terms of guys who will also be on the roster, I think Kevin Pangos will stick here as well because I think he is a veteran overseas guard who is obviously coming back to get his crack at the NBA, but he is my age, almost in his thirties. And it's just an interesting to think about too, when you consider him a rookie, but I think he'll be there, especially if they trade Rubio, they use him as the primary backup at the point guard position. So if you want to break down the roster, it's probably going to be in terms of depth chart at point, it'll be Garland Rubio Pangos at shooting guard. It will likely be Sexton golly uh we'll, we'll come back to the shooting guard because i have to break this down a little bit more small forward it'll be isaac okoro likely jetty osman and then lamar stevens at power forward you have evan mobley kevin love and dean wade and then at center you have Jared Allen, Larry Markin, and probably Ed Davis who they just signed to a deal right before we started recording this so in terms of the two guard spot you really look at some of the other players on the roster too. You have Colin Sexton there. Uh, maybe Kyle Guy sticks the team. Um, there's some interesting pieces. Just not a lot of people really stood out necessarily. And I think the Cavs just have so many uh, multifaceted players. They don't have to worry about depth there. Um, but I, I'm, they only have one open roster spot after this. I think maybe they Ed Davis will be the last guy who fills that roster spot at this point. I think his, I, I got a text while we were talking. I haven't looked it over, but I think he has a one-year non-guaranteed deal or it's partially guaranteed, one of the two, but it's a player J.B. Biggerstaff pushed for because he's a good locker room guy in the Cavs need plenty of adults in the room. But two-way potential, I think it's going to be Taco Fall for sure just because he has a lot of fans in the organization, especially on the coaching staff and just in Cleveland in general. And, I mean, it also helps because their G League team just moved into downtown Cleveland, and if you get a guy like Taco Fall, it's pretty easy marketing to say, come look at the tallest player in basketball play. Um, oh, Denzel Valentine will be here too. So Denzel Valentine could possibly play the two. I just kind of forget he exists, even though he's like the funniest guy I've heard speak. <laughs> um, he just hasn't played a serious minute of meaningful basketball for the Cavs. We'll finally see that hopefully Friday against the Pacers, but 
maybe the Caswells try and keep some roster flexibility too, just in case a trade comes along. Maybe they become a third team in a Ben Sippins trade just to maybe get some draft picks or other compensation for the trouble because they were the third team in the James Harden trade and it netted them Jared Allen. Now I'm saying it's not going to get them the same return as last time, but it, it doesn't hurt to be a bad team who has their options open so they can kind of be the, uh, the grease that moves the wheel forward. Yeah, that's brilliant, man. That's awesome. awesome on that end of roster and some fascinating decisions coming up. The last two questions are, um, pick, if you were happy with with the season this year, at the end of it, how many wins would you say the Cavs would have? I know that that didn't necessarily mean um, that you would be happy because you, you, I can tell the way you cover the team, you'd much rather see young guys develop. But what would be a decent season in your eyes in terms of a win total? Um, and then... Um, yeah, if, if there was a lower, you know, if you said, oh, this season was a disaster and the team was absolutely awful, what would that win total be? An absolutely awful season for the Cavs would be, let's just, let's go, let's go cynical first and we'll go optimistic the rep to kind of lead towards the final conversation points. Um, Darius Garland does not build upon his strong sophomore season. We see more of the same. You see more of the same from Isaac Accorda. We don't see that what improvements he's actually improvements he's actually made this offseason. Evan Mobley just has a frustrating rookie season, but I, I don't feel too bad in saying he won't do that. Um, Kevin Love has another blow up. JB Bickerstaff and Kobe Altman get fired because the team doesn't make the playoffs, and they just are not competitive at all at times. And I think you're going to take a little bit of that, but a successful season for them. Is team owner Dan Gilbert remaining patient and maybe realizing, okay, we don't have a playoff caliber roster just yet. We have a pretty young and exciting team and we need to be patient with this. Because I think, again, I, I said this a few times, they should take example from their crosstown neighbors in the Cleveland Browns and let the basketball people make the right decisions and let ownership just write the checks and remain patient and eventually it pays off. Um, that's what the Browns did after they hired Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry. I think the Cavs could do the same thing here with Kobe Altman and J.B. Bickerstaff. Um, I think a successful season for them in terms of wins, I think no matter what, they're going to hover around that 26 mark. I think 30 wins realistically is like their height they could reach just because let's put it this way. Their starting lineup. If they start Garland, Sexton, Okoro, Mobley, Allen, the average age of that lineup is 21.5 years old. And the most experienced player is Jared Allen, but the average in terms of experience is like they combined like that unit has 2.5 years of NBA experience on average. Like that's just a very inexperienced roster. You're going to see a lot of growing pains and a lot of frustrating nights, but it's about the long-term potential of this team. And you really can't like Ty Lu said it best, man. And it's such a good quote because it's not about wins and losses it's about wins and lessons. So yeah, you don't want to make a culture that's conducive to losing. So a good season would be that, but you see tangible growth from all the young players to start saying like, okay, the Cavs aren't still quite a playoff team, but they're getting closer and closer to it. And I mean, God willing, Evan Mobley has like a transcendental rookie season. I have my doubts because big men have a need a little bit longer to adapt to the NBA. Um, maybe we really start having that serious conversation next off season when Kevin loves on an expiring contract and maybe Kobe Altman then has the freedom to make some moves to really support this young cast that he's put together. Oh, that's so good, man. And I think a really good, some really good lessons there for teams, for supporters of these types of teams in terms of what you're looking for and being realistic. Like, you, you don't always want to be realistic and you, you want to say, yeah, look, we, we can make the playoffs or whatever. But the more important thing when you have these young pieces is, is for them to contribute on a level which is going to 
lead to winning long term, you're and increasing potentially the, the value of an asset by, by playing at that level. So I appreciate your realism in that regard. Um, we've had 55 minutes of amazing Cavs chat. Um, I really appreciate the nuance that you brought to to talking around this team. It's never it's never easy to cover a team when you know they're in this strange mode where they you know they don't have cap space and they've got pieces that don't really fit together but it's it's still exciting to have the young guys they have there so um i really appreciate the um as i said the how real you were around the team and then some really interesting breakdown on what i think will still be a pretty interesting and fun team to follow in terms of league pass yeah, I think Zach Lowe ranking him so low on League Pass, maybe he's just not paying attention. I always question how he's able to watch all 30 teams at once and still you know, <laughs> in a, a normal life. It's it's incredible. He's like, my wife just gave birth to our child. By the way, she's Croatian. But did you also want to see my nitty-gritty breakdown on what this player did on a random team on a Tuesday <laughs> night? Like, I think it's incredible, but... I think Zach is a little low on it. I think some folks are a little low on him. Like, I think he said it best. Like, they're a young team. Yeah, they're going to have some pretty crappy nights, but there's going to be some young, exciting stuff. Um, I mean, hey, that Cavs team is still pretty bad last year, but the, one of the biggest highlights was them toppling the big three Brooklyn Net debut with Colin Sexton going absolutely nuclear in the fourth quarter in overtime. Like, there's going to be a lot of moments like that. There's going to be a lot of growing pains and frustrations along the way as well. And then you just kind of see where it goes from there. But yeah, man, thank you for having me. This was great. Like we, we should definitely talk about them soon. Maybe after we have some of that tangible data, I keep talking about, we can really take a gauge of what this team actually is. Yep. I'd love that, man. Um, some of the guys I've done uh, season previews with, uh, and chicks as well, we'll, we'll be, we'll be, um, be bringing them back on during the season to, to sort of talk on what's been going on. We're going to close this one out now. Wish you all the best covering the team this season. Um, yeah, I know that the NBA is so unpredictable, so we never know what can happen with any market. Um, and yeah, just yeah, wish you all the best and hope you have a really fun season covering the team. And I look forward to talking again soon. Thanks. I really appreciate it, Ben. Awesome. You have a good night.